Brothers and sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word, continuing forward in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 14. We'll be looking at the idolatrous response to the gospel there in the city of Lystra. I'm going to read all of chapter 14. You'll see our focus is on verses 5 through 18. Please listen very carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude of the Jews and of the Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews, with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness. In that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Please be seated. So you see I'm leaving that little map there in your sermon notes so you can see the geography of what's going on here. And This is modern day Turkey and uh, Cyprus. And I hope that you are praying for the gospel in Turkey and the gospel in Cyprus as a part of the application of these sermons and as the ponderings of your mind, consider what God did then, may we see another great revival in this area now in today's world. As we go into this text, I wonder how often uh, 
have we heard of abusive pastors who were able to persist in their sin for years before being brought to account? You may find it strange, but I think you'll see the connection as we go through this text. Have you ever wondered to yourself how this occurred? Why did they, how were they allowed to persist in this abusive behavior for so long? I think today's text will give us some insight into our sinful desire to deify our leaders, and it will serve as a warning for us all to beware of the Diotrephes syndrome. And we'll look at Diotrephes from 3 John as we go through this. There are uh, correlations, there are direct connections in human behavior from what happened in Lystra to what happens in these spiritually abusive situations. Today we're going to look at the persecution and preaching at Lystra and Derby in verses 5 through 7. We're going to look at the healing of this lame man, this crippled man who had never walked before. And we're going to see that the city has this widespread, amazing response, sinful, idolatrous response. We're going to see the right way to respond. And this is this passionate public rejection of idolatry that we see from Paul and Barnabas. And then they re-preach the gospel to them again. They'd already been preaching it. To go back and put their finger on some really important points for this pagan people to hear. And yet their hearts continue in their idolatry even after that correction. They're barely able to restrain them from going forward with sacrificing to them. So let's move into the text. Verse 5 says... And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. So as I've done at other times, it's good to consider the travels that these missionaries were going through as they went from town to town. So Lystra is about 20 miles from Iconium, which at that time would have been a, a day's walk, about a full day's walk. Commentary says the city of Lystra is about 20 miles southwest of Iconium. It was probably founded by Augustus in 25 B.C. in a town that already existed at the site. It was a military colony. The city was called the Sister of Pisidian Antioch, perhaps because it was founded as a colony at the same time. The epithet Gemina suggests that members of two legions were stationed in the colony, so there would have been veterans of two Roman legions living here and nearby. More inscriptions have survived of Lystra than of any other colony that Augusta founded, Augustus founded in Asia Minor. So it's, I think it's important to get a sense of what this town was like as we consider the gospel coming to their town. Coins and inscriptions document the worship of Augustus, of Ceres, of Mercurius, Hermes, of Minerma and of Tichy. The temple of Zeus, mentioned in Acts 14, verse 13, fits the information that we have about the worship of Zeus in the neighboring towns of Lystra and in that region. Now, Lystra's wealth was linked with this strategic location. To view the citizens of Lystra as rustics because they lived in Lystra and spoke Lycaonian is misguided population would have been bilingual, speaking Greek as well, with some of the descendants of the veterans also speaking Latin. Recent research has shown that Lystra was a prosperous city that was not as insignificant as earlier scholars <clears throat> assumed. So Paul and Barnabas and their team have fled from persecution in Iconium, and they've come to Lystra and Derby and the surrounding regions. Continuing down that Roman road, which is the Via Sebasti, they continued to preach the gospel along this road. And as we saw last week, this road was a beautiful providence of God to grant inland access from the coast and allowed for the Roman military to really encompass this region when you see the shape of the road. So they're going down this road and they're preaching the gospel to the cities along this road. They have experienced significant resistance already, and as we read today, that's not going to get any better as time goes on. They've had threats, they've had attacks in multiple cities. Put yourselves in their shoes. And what do they do? 
what would you have done? I mean, did they get back on the boat and go to Antioch and like, we need to pray and fast some more. I'm not quite sure this is working. You know, in Luke 9, they would have heard Jesus say, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. They had a calling. The calling was upon their life and they knew what God had called them to do. Perhaps this sheds light on Paul's view of John Mark's decision to depart from the missionary work and Paul's strong resistance to John Mark joining with them for Paul's second missionary journey. When we look at this in Acts 16, we can see in today's text the devotion of Paul and Barnabas to the calling that they have. And subsequently, they do not want people in their midst that are going to drain from that commitment. They don't want John Mark to go with them again in Acts 16. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, so Paul doesn't want him to come. Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. And remember, they're relatives. So Barnabas wants to take his relative Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. So as we pass through this text, it's an important point of application. I want to ask each one of you, how do you respond when following Christ really, in real life, feels like carrying a cross? How do you respond? When you go through that, Jesus said, having put your hand to the plow, do not look back. Is that your approach to following Christ? Do you keep your hand to the plow? Or do you look back? Do you entertain thoughts to let go and take a hold of a different plow or go on a different path? That's not what they did. They stayed the course. So what happens next? been preaching. The gospel's been going out in this region. We know that. And here's what happens next. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. So they're preaching the gospel. Paul has been preaching the gospel. That's what he's doing. This man has been listening to him. The lame man, he's never walked. I want us to recall together what the message, the essence of the message would have been that Paul would have been preaching. We know what it is. We have it from Luke 24. Jesus gave them the bullet point outline of what they were to be preaching when they preached the gospel. Jesus said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins will be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of My Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. It is good for us to recall over and over again the Gospel message that they would have been preaching. First of all, Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Messiah of the Jews and of the world. Not just a regional Savior. And it was necessary for Jesus Christ to be crucified. And it was necessary for Jesus Christ to rise from the dead. That's what Jesus said to them. And of course it brings the question to mind, why is this necessary? And he answers when he tells them that they would preach repentance in his name to all nations, and that they would preach the remission of sins in His name to all nations. There is no remission of sins apart from Christ's death upon the cross. There's no hope of a life of repentance apart from Christ's resurrection from the dead. And they go together. We heard about justification and sanctification this morning. It starts with the forgiveness of sins through confessing our sins to God, trusting in Christ's death, His substitutionary atonement for
for you, for me, upon the cross. That's where it starts. But then we go on with a continued life of repentance that we know is possible because look here, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. We all encounter that sense of hopelessness and powerlessness and despair in the face of our own sin. But Jesus Christ has come back from the dead. And so there's always hope. We have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Jesus Christ, when He told them to preach the Gospel, He made sure that it was going to be a message of remission of sins and repentance based upon His death and His resurrection. But He also told them to emphasize the experiential aspect of this. The power of the Holy Spirit of God bringing success to this Gospel ministry. Bringing the Word into the mind of the hearers. The preacher being able to present accurately the Gospel. And the mind of the hearer being illuminated by the Holy Spirit and brought into the heart of the hearer unto faith and eternal life. Unto a life of sanctification. They're not left alone as they preach this Gospel message. This is what that lame man would have been hearing there on the ground that day. He would have been hearing that Jesus of Nazareth is not just a regional Savior. He's a global Savior. And that He didn't just die for our sins, but He came back from the dead, raised up by His Father, and that He's now ascended. You see the implication there? If He's sending the Holy Spirit, that He's ascended. This man would have been hearing about God, the Most High God bringing salvation to the souls of sinners. And he would have been thinking, I wonder if I could walk. I wonder if this same God... I mean, he, many signs and wonders had been done. Surely he would have heard of them. It says that they were being done there in that region. So they've been preaching this message. Now, the text does not report to us that much belief was occurring in this region. Uh, you saw in other towns there was belief. Was, there were stunning movements of growth in belief, growth in believers, growth in the church. It's not reported to us here in this situation, which strongly implies that it wasn't happening. And the text does not report anything about a Jewish presence in this city. They don't go to the synagogue. There's no mention of that. Now, it doesn't prove that there wasn't, but there's something different about this town. <clears throat> Either way, the implication is that their initial preaching was neither believed nor rejected. Neither believed nor rejected. There was a lot of curiosity. There was a lot of listening. But the people had not been divided. Remember the other town we looked at? That the whole town was divided by the gospel? That had not happened. So the miraculous healing, therefore, we can, as we look at the whole town, is interpreted by the people within their own world of continuing idolatrous unbelief. So they come to this miracle with all of their pre-existing false beliefs. And they're pagans. They believe in an unseen world. They believe in a spiritual world. So that's the setting. Well, Paul looks at this man, and Paul, by God's grace, sees that this man has faith to be healed. So this man, crippled from birth, he didn't just break a leg. He has never walked. Certainly a picture of our old man. He's heard the gospel of the resurrected Savior and the power of God by His Holy Spirit. And he's coming to faith in a God who resurrects from the dead. The man is believing this message, especially excited that perhaps God might heal his lameness. And certainly as the gospel's taking root in his soul, he knows he's going to walk someday commentary says Paul perceives that the man has faith to be saved. In the context of the description of the lame man's illness and Luke's earlier accounts of the healing of lame men and of other miracles, the man's hope to be saved should be understood in terms of an expectation to be cured. Since Luke's readers know that Paul's message connects faith with Jesus the Savior, with forgiveness of sins, and with eternal life, the faith of the lame man probably includes all of these. 
The expectation that the power of the God of the Jews, whom Paul proclaimed, a power that brought Jesus back from the dead, would bring him onto his feet and heal him from his birth defect. This is his expectation. And also grant him forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So what we see here is a strong implication that this man seems the comprehensive power of God in his life for all of his deficiencies, for his sin, for his brokenness, for everything he needs. Now Paul has faith to call the lame man to act on his faith. Think of it. Paul has the faith to call the lame man to act on the faith that he's observing that the man has. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. So Paul didn't heal him. A strong suggestion here is he was already healed. He just needed to get up. And he probably didn't need anybody to say anything in order for him to get up. But Paul saw what was happening. And he said to him, stand up straight on your feet. That helped the man. That helped him to see that he had the faith. What does he do? He leaped and walked. That's what happens when faith is at work. Others can help us obey. Somehow the Lord granted to Paul to understand that this man had been granted faith in God to heal him. So Paul calls this man to act on this faith that he's observing. The man does so. He leaps. He walks. There's a lot of parallels to what happened there at, uh, at the temple with Peter and John with the first healing there. So the Holy, Holy Spirit, what's happening? What's happening? The Holy Spirit is bearing witness to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ these signs and wonders that were going along with them as they preached the gospel. I think we also see, and we need to ask ourselves this, I mean, if Paul had that kind of faith, can we have faith to ask God for miraculous healings in the context of exalting Christ's crucifixion and resurrection and preaching the repentance and remission of sins? So in the context of gospel ministry, When we come across people who are sick in their bodies, do we have faith to ask God to heal them in Christ's name and demonstrate to them, to bear witness by His Spirit to them through this miracle? Do you ask God to miraculously heal? And you've got to see this is in gospel context. This is in the context of exalting the name of Jesus Christ. See, the sign miracles that attested to the canon being open and the apostolic authority of those individuals, those are passed away. Scriptures are closed and there are no more apostles like that. But miraculous movement of God may still occur. Do we ask for it? Do we have faith to ask God for miraculous works like this? Should we more highly value the miraculous work? This is from last week, just going back real quick. Should we more highly value the miraculous work of God in converting a dead soul to faith in Jesus Christ? Or the miracle of helping a lame man to walk? Which is a greater miracle? I think we'd have to say that when the Holy Spirit moves into the heart of a rebellious human being, and brings them to their knees before a holy God and grants them an accurate view of their own sin and shows them the cross of Christ and they trust in Jesus Christ, that's the greater miracle. But we we still do want to ask God to to heal people. So how how does the town respond? What happens? It's idolatry. And it's kind of predictable. When the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. 
So they have this locally dominant false worship. It's the Greek pantheon that's in place here. And it's still standing solid in their minds. So they falsely interpret this miraculous healing. Their own false system of worship, the way they understand the world, it believes that the gods do at times visit mankind. And it appears they are ecstatic to find themselves in such an epoch-defining moment. They would have thought through the false writings of their own false worship and considered themselves to be blessed and that they would be a part of the next great writing. Zeus is the sky father. That's what they thought of him as. He's the highest god amongst all the gods. He gathers the clouds. He sends the rain and the thunder and the lightning. He's the strongest of the gods, and that's why they sacrifice bulls to him. He's the one who gives victory. He's the father of men and gods whose domain is the agora, where he presides over the dealings of the community. He's the savior. He's the ruler of all rulers. He's the god of the universe. And thus he's worshipped in large temples. So he's the top dog in their false system of worship. Hermes is described as the god who governs speech. Hermes appears in the Greek epics as the son of Zeus, as the swift messenger sent by Zeus, as an emissary who crosses the boundary between the living and the dead, and thus as the god of transition and mediator between God and humans. And some stories have him being half God and half man. And he's the one who talked. He was the communicator. So you can see why they would believe Barnabas is Zeus and Hermes, Paul is Hermes. Some commentaries mention the idea that this may give us a clue to Barnabas' appearance, that he would have had silver hair and a silver beard and been a, a shocking presence because that was the kind of the universal view of what Zeus looked like. So in any case, they think they are getting the visit of visits. That's what they think is going on. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. Consider being raised in this and believing that this is true. And this idea is spreading through your town that the God of all gods and his son are here for a visit. Look, here's the guy who was lame. He couldn't walk. He's been healed. This must be the God of all gods. So what happens? Well, the priest of Zeus gets in on the business. And, and there's a lot of different things that come to mind here about underlying, potential underlying motives. The priest of Zeus brings the oxen to sacrifice at the gates of the city. The temple of Zeus is in this prominent location there in Lystra. It was like the centerpiece. And so this en- entire city is dominated by this false worship. And they're, they're imagining like this is going to be the greatest party ever. They're about to have some sort of long-term, big-time feast. So the people of Zeus and the priests of Zeus, if you think of it, they would have had many uh, not good, many not good motives for enfolding this miracle into their own system of religion. Would have maintained the status quo. And for especially the leaders, would have kept them in their power, would have kept them in their prominence, would have kept them in their profit. And if they could have brought... Barnabas and Paul in and they'd all been big pals together then they could have all been the recipients of this increased power and profit and prominence so here's how you respond to this if you ever see this happening there's this passionate public rejection of idolatry and it's immediate but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this they tore their clothes and they ran in among the the multitude crying out. So, when your heart longs for God's glory and the glory of Christ, and through the message of the gospel, people get it wrong and start glorifying someone else other than God himself, it's time to correct. And it will be passionate. So, did they delay... Was it a private response? Did they need a minute to pray about it and think about it? Did they make sure they were cool and calm and without emotion or passion? A little quiet meeting with the priests of Zeus. Talk it through. Or there's a place. That's a kind of response. 
that would be acceptable in certain situations. But there's so much writing on this that they don't want this to persist for one minute. They don't want to leave any room for miscommunication. So they act immediately. They act humbly. And they act with passion. The humble is them tearing their clothes. That was an, a public act of humility to tear your clothes. And they passionately, the word there is, cried out to the people. So this is very important. This teaches us a lot of how we should think about and act towards these types of situations. The commentary says, when they heard this, they rent their clothes do not find that they rent their clothes when the people vilified them and spoke of stoning them. They could bear this without disturbance. But when they deified them and spoke of worshiping them, they could not bear it, but rent their clothes as being more concerned for God's honor than their own. This is what John the Baptist said. He must increase. I must decrease. The most obnoxious thing to the soul of a Christian as if they would be getting glory instead of God. So I want us to note how genuine gospel preachers will not tolerate for one moment the giving of glory to anyone other than God himself. And, and you know, we can think back for a minute, can't we, and contrast this with Herod who was eaten by worms. He celebrated it. He said, yes, we don't know that for sure, but he the context is strongly suggests that he was saying, yeah, give it to me. Because he did get struck and die. So you've got that on the one hand. And perhaps these folks had had experiences with leaders like this. Perhaps they expected to be able to just bring them right in. How surprised they must have been. But these gospel preachers would have none of it. None of it. Now, there's another thing for us to note here. And this is a warning for all of us now and through to the future. Children, especially listen, please. If God has you also to grow up and live and die in this church here, she would never, ever forget this reality of how quickly and easily shared corporate sinful beliefs can unite into corporate delusions and sinful elevation of God's messengers. That's why it is so critical that we submit ourselves fully to the Word of God when we choose our leaders. Matthew Henry says, See how easily vain minds are carried away with a popular outcry. If the crowd give a shout, Here is Zeus. The priest of Zeus takes the first hint and offers his service immediately. When Christ, the Son of God, came down and appeared in the likeness of men and did many, very many miracles, yet they were so far from doing sacrifice to him that they made him a sacrifice to their pride and malice. He was in the world and the world knew him not. He came to his own and his own received him not. But Paul and Barnabas, upon the working of one miracle, are immediately deified. Here it is. The same power of the God of this world, which prejudices the carnal mind against truth, makes errors and mistakes to find easy admission. And both ways, his turn is served. So there is this reality about us together as sinners. We want to worship other human beings. We want to deify other human beings. And this is on display for us here. So how do they correct it? They preach the gospel. They elevate God above all things. And they say, that is not me. He is the only true God. Saying, men, why are you doing this? So they've cried out. They've torn their clothing. They're still there in the midst of the crowd. Somehow it sounds like they get their attention and they preach the gospel. Men, why are you doing these things? They haven't been listening. We also are men with the same nature as you. So that's the first thing. I'm a fallen sinner just like you. I need Jesus Christ as Savior just like you. We are in this together. Going on, 
and preached to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. Who knows, maybe he pointed to the temple. Maybe he pointed to the oxen. Maybe he pointed to the garlands. Turn to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. You see how he elevates God, the God of creation, the most high God, the one true and living God. He is the one. Who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness. And that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. So how does he correct the idolatry? And again, note the unique emphasis that is necessary when, when dealing with polyist, polytheistic pagans. But this will also be helpful in any situation where the same kind of human deification begins to come into play a bit. And they wanted to deify them, but you'll see how I'm presenting it to you. Anytime a person is elevated more than they should be, you're, you're kind of beginning that same process. So what do they do? First, they emphasize the shared humanity. We also are men with the same nature as you. Paul and Barnabas, called by God, special men that we all know are chosen by God in these fantastic, unique ways. We also are men with the same nature as you. What does that mean? Well, just list the commandments in your mind and their flesh wants to break every one of them as well. List all the vile things that you could ever imagine that human beings could do. Paul and Barnabas are saying, that's us too. We need a Savior. We are not God. We are just men. We need a Savior too. Next. They say, repent of idolatry, these useless things, and turn to the living God. So they, they just again preach the simple message. Leave this behind and turn to God. And they've taken themselves out of the equation already and now they go back to the gospel. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about you turning from these useless things, these dead things, these things that cannot help you and turning to the living God who will save you. Now, he's contrasting also the living God with these useless idols. Useless means devoid of force, with no truth, no success, no result of no purpose. Another word is vanities. This is the absolute opposite of how he describes the living God. There's never any vanity or purposelessness or uselessness in the living God. He looks first to the power and to the mercy, kindness, and patience of this one true and living God. Power. You want real power? You want to go beyond Zeus and Hermes? You want to think... You, no. Forget about Zeus and Hermes. There's one true and living God who made the heaven the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. And He is kind, and He is merciful, and He is patient. He references God's benevolent providence to all the earth during this, the ages it had gone before. Bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. But He didn't leave without a witness for Himself. His witness being rain and springtime and trees growing and food on the table and laughter with their spouses and their children and their grandchildren. God gave that to these pagan people to enjoy filling their hearts with food and gladness. Commentary says in biblical revelation there is a clear distinction between the living God and heaven, earth, the sea and all creatures therein is God's creation. It is certainly correct to assert that the first step required in non-Jewish hearers of the gospel is that they should recognize that there is but one God and take Him and His requirements seriously. So that's what they had to back up to. They had to back up to monotheism versus polytheism. Since Paul and Barnabas had been preaching for some time in Lystra, they would have made this point earlier. Thus, they either reiterate their earlier emphasis or they express convictions that are immediately relevant for the specific situation of this attempted procession and sacrifice. 
So it's very simple. Paul and Barnabas give glory to God and call the people to look away from their false religion, away from their deification of other human beings, and to look only to the one true and living God and to believe His gospel. Well, sadly, it appears as though there still wasn't a lot of belief in this town. They've done their very best, but we see they still have these persistent idolatrous hearts because the text says, and with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. So again, children, whatever church you end up in, but you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the future of Cornerstone. May God deliver us from this urge May God spare us from ever having a spiritually abusive leader accepted by the people of this church. Amen? Amen. So even though Paul and Barnabas are able to stop them from carrying out their external forms of false religion, these people sadly remain in the unbelief of their idolatrous system. They still want to see it rolling. So we need to take from this how difficult, how impossible it is really, apart from God's miracles, to keep fallen, sinful human beings from becoming starry-eyed and blinded regarding their religious leaders. And we don't have to look far to find systems that really, really capitalize on this sinful synergy between the people and the person who wants to be elevated. And that that elevation actually is promoted as a good thing. It's loyalty. It's the man of God. That whole sick system where one person gets that kind of focus and that kind of power. Left to our sin, we will give ourselves over to some form of false worship. And it will delude us. How dare you talk bad about him? And in the world of religion... So this same kind of sinful urge, you bring it into the world of religion and it will allow for and protect abusive spiritual leadership. It's a helpful book. It's not as saturated with scripture, but it's helpful. It's called Bully Pulpit. You'll see some of these examples shown before you of what have happened. Public things that we can go and read about and other stories that this pastor has sadly been exposed to his experience. Commentary says, Paul and Barnabas had cured a cripple and therefore the people deified them instead of glorifying God for giving them such power, which should make us very cautious that we do not give the honor to another or take it to ourselves, which is due to God only. So as you can see, I've kind of put a heavy emphasis in this text to beware of spiritual abuse. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. A um, couple things. There are multiple responses to the gospel that we've seen so far, right? Two categories. There's belief and unbelief, right? But even within the unbelief category, we see two broad things. One is hatred. Just a, a violent rejection that leads to threats and attacks. We've seen that. But we've seen here another response to the gospel, which is idolatry. And so we can think back through history, can't we? Especially with Roman Catholicism. All the syncretism that the Roman Catholic missionaries would embrace. So instead of responding the way that Paul and Barnabas responded, they'd be like, hey, you know, we can work with this over time and we can bring them along over time. So we see the proper response to both forms of rejection of the gospel. Next, it's worth a moment just reminding us to have the faith to ask God to heal people. To have the faith to ask God for miraculous healings. Uh, and to know that he is the God who created all things from nothing, and certainly he can heal someone of a physical ailment. But I do want to dig in a little bit by way of application to this idolatrous response to the gospel. Be aware, please, that pre-existing false worship presuppositions can lead to worshiping the gospel preacher instead of glorifying God. And that each of us have that tendency. Each of us have that tendency to put people on a pedestal. I mean, you see it in our world today. All the 
you know, the famous podcast. How many hits did, did that podcaster get? And we all know the big names that we can reference that are alive today. And of course, there's going to be leaders of the faith, and, and that's good and expected. But how is your heart responding to that? And the worship of the gospel preacher will be according to the pre-existing forms of false worship. I've referenced some systems. I think this is one of the reasons why Presbyterianism is so critical. Abusive spiritual leadership will be more likely to proliferate in forms of ecclesiastical structure that do not involve the plurality of elders, nor do they involve higher church courts to hold these men accountable. So you can see how these things can proliferate pretty easily and be outside of people's vision. They won't see it. And an idolatrous response is fueled at least in part by a desire to maintain the false worship forms with its positional prestige, profits, power, and I'll add to that status quo. So on the part of the people in our sin, we don't want to be sanctified. You know, I've heard it said, everybody loves shepherding until they get shepherded. (laughs) I've heard that from multiple pastors. Oh, everybody's all about shepherding, yeah, until you actually sit down with someone and start asking questions and going through shepherding, and they're like, I'm not so sure about that. So we don't want to be sanctified in our flesh. But in the gospel, we love being sanctified together. So on the one hand, the people in this system don't want to be sanctified. So it works well for them as well to elevate someone be a part of a big happening thing, but not have to actually change. Of course, the individual being elevated is going to gain power, prestige, and profits. So, gospel preachers, and we have to say believers in general, have to see this and reject it. It's your responsibility to understand this whether you're in gospel ministry as a church leader or not, and to be aware of it and to watch out for it. Of course, you know in our denomination we've been through this, and so you're probably thinking that's why he's preaching on this, and you're right. (laughs) We have been through this. We have seen it. We've watched it, and sadly, it's still going on, even though this individual was excommunicated by the presbytery. I think if I'd heard a sermon like this some years ago, I might have been able to spot things sooner. So it's your responsibility to have your eyes open to the possibility of this and the sinful likelihood of us all wanting this. Okay. And the rejection of idolatry must include a passionate, public, immediate rejection of the idolatrous actions that take place. That's what is needed. And again, this is to emphasize often what happens in secret should be happening in public. When you look at the stories, you can read about how this gets set up. The systems themselves are set up to keep things secret. So no, that's not what gospel preachers do. Gospel preachers go immediately and publicly about it. And then, of course, they're going to re-preach the gospel and point everyone to the glory of God. And they're going to say and they're going to do things that pronounce, he must increase and I must decrease. In addition, we can just, by way of passing, I don't think it's something that we necessarily struggle with in our circles. Maybe we do and I just don't see it. Is the idea of syncretism. And it is a tempting evil. Uh, Why fight against these ubiquitous religious urges? Let's accept them and restrain them, excuse me, retrain them instead for the purposes of the gospel. Right? And that's syncretism. Uh, But we need to reject them. I want us to note how our sinful human urge towards preacher worship lends itself to abusive spiritual leaders and how such leaders will capitalize on this idolatrous urge you'll hear things like, well, we're just being loyal to the pastor. And when the pastor's challenged, the pastor will say things like, well, aren't you loyal to your pastor? It's, it's, it's the same kind of sin that we saw in today's text being used to deceive people and 
taking that urge that they have for the sake of bad leadership, for the sake of selfish gain. Even sincere gospel preachers will have a very difficult time keeping some people from worshiping the preacher instead of God. I think if Paul and Barnabas had had more time to confess their sins to these people, that that would have been probably one of the greatest defenses against that happening. So I hope that you will grant your church leaders opportunities to confess their sins to you. Because they are many and they are great. And that that will be a long-term protective against this type of nonsense occurring in this church or any other church. And finally, I'd just say beware the diatrophy syndrome. I'll read this text from 3 John, and I think you'll see the kind of thing that can happen. So this is John the Apostle. He says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we do ask, Lord, that you would write these truths from your word upon our hearts and minds, that you would cause these truths to bear fruit in our thinking and in our living and that you would, by your grace, transmit this reality through to all generations to come. That you would grant to us, Lord, freedom and deliverance at all phases from such abuse that could take place, from such deification of church leaders. And instead, Lord, that you would grant to us always to have healthy relationships of love and service between pastors and deacons and members of the church. For your glory and for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.